Welcome back to Awakened Exchanges. I'm your host, Jay Rich, and I want to thank you all again for joining us today. It means so much that you're here listening and sharing this podcast with others. It's all of your new thoughts and energy that helps this podcast community thrive. And for those that are just joining us, I want to truly welcome you to the exchange. You listeners are what keep my energy up and things moving forward. You are the most important part of this podcast, so please remember... If you have any suggestions for topics or guests, I do listen to the listeners, and I look forward to your emails. You can either email me from the website or contact me on Twitter at AwakenExchanges. I hope you're as excited to be here today as I am to be back with you once again. And much like last week, I want to thank Sean Shumway for once again joining us on The Exchange. This week, we're going to finish our conversation about Tom O'Neill's book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the secret history of the 60s. I maintain that everyone out there should read this book. Yes, you. Even after you finish this series, I will definitely not do it justice, no matter how hard I try. But there are most definitely going to be spoilers ahead, so consider yourself very forewarned. In the show notes, I've included a link to where you can buy Tom O'Neill's book and support a local bookstore at the same time. Um, This week, we're going to start the dive by going into San Francisco and where Charles Manson gathers his Manson family, as well as follow it down to L.A. where the Manson family murders actually took place. Now, we've been telling the story in a different way and linking the players together from different angles than Tom O'Neill did, um, hypothesizing as I go, kind of pointing out a lot of coincidences that... uh, that I hope make you think enough to do your own research and do a deep dive into this subject. Now, we've already talked about COINTELPRO, Operation Chaos, MKUltra, and Jolly West, as well as the JFK assassination. But now we get to wrap how all of that is tied into the Manson family murders and just how the CIA may have actually been responsible for killing the 60s. Now, One more thing before I move on, I want to once again thank Wikipedia for providing a lot of the consensus fact material that I use to flesh out the story. Like I said, Tom O'Neill did a much better job in his 20-year thesis writing this book, but uh, this provides a foundation for people to start their own process. Now, before I get to the show, here's a brief rundown of our sponsors. First off, I want to thank all of you personally for your support. Just listening and sharing this podcast with your friends gives me a reason to keep providing the best content that I can. If you have the means and would like to contribute personally, please take a look at our Patreon page where you will get access to exclusive content and deals. As for our other sponsors, Awaken Vapes was the first of the Awaken brands and has been helping you modulate your high with CBD-only, high-terpene vape products since 2019, while Genesis Farms has been making the highest quality medicinal RSO among many other fantastic products since starting with the medical community back before 2010. And last but not least, the Caramel Corn Company, bringing you caramel corn the way it was meant to be. And remember, if you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe to us on YouTube, or follow us wherever else you're listening, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. I know that every podcaster says it, but that's because it really does help spread the word. You can also support us on Patreon or connect with us on the social media of your choice. We are at Awakened Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram, and at Awaken Exchanges on Twitter. All right now, stay tuned, and thank you for listening to Awakened Exchanges.
Genesis Farms was founded on the belief in cannabis's ability to heal. Genesis Farms is more than a brand. They're a compassionate community of like-minded individuals that generate top-quality cannabis products made with love and care. Community outreach is always on their mind, and their partnerships with Grow for Vets and Parents for Pot was just the beginning to what they hope to accomplish in the coming years. You can find their products on the best dispensary shelves across the state of Oregon. Their RSO is the most consistent quality in the state. Their tinctures are second to none, and their personal massage oil will have you and your partner both coming back for more. Find them on Facebook and Instagram and ask for them in your local dispensary today. Don't forget to listen to Sean's interview here on Awakened Exchanges. It's episode number three. The Caramel Corn Company is bringing you caramel corn the way it was meant to be. Made with premium ingredients in small, handcrafted batches and completely gluten-free. The flavors include original, roasted cashew, salted almond, mixed nut, spicy sriracha, white morsel macadamia, peanut butter, butterscotch, and my personal favorites, chocolate drizzle and raspberry caramel apple. I can't say enough about how delicious this caramel corn is. It makes a great gift any time of the year. You can find them on sale in Portland area Market of Choice locations and online again here real soon. Visit caramelcorncompany.com for more information today. Remember, buying local supports small businesses and keeps your money building your community. And last but not least, Awaken Vapes has been bringing you some of the highest quality CBD vape cartridges since ringing in the new year in 2019. I became passionate about cannabis after a car wreck left me with major migraines and no prescribed pills helped alleviate any of the symptoms. Having only tried cannabis a handful of times in high school and college, it was a doctor's recommendation that led me to give cannabis another try. Only then did I realize that we'd all been at least a little misled about the health benefits of this amazing plant. Despite the unexpected break because of the vape ban and then a global health crisis, the business is stronger than ever and we invite you to check out our updated website today. We are still offering our three varieties with new improved terpene formulations and enhanced flavor to go along with the custom blended terpene effect profiles. Check back at awakenvapes.com for any updates. You can always email us about wholesaling or white labeling opportunities as well. Welcome back again to Awakened Exchanges, everybody. Last week, we started our conversation about chaos, Tom O'Neill's amazing book. And uh, I want to welcome back Sean Shumway to continue that in-depth discussion with me today. Glad to be here. And here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One of my favorite podcasts is uh, called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. And as they like to say... Here's where it gets crazy. (laughs) That about fits this one, yes. I suppose it's as good a time as any to get really deep into the HAFMC, or the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic Connection. 
I know that I'm going to miss a lot of these smaller connections and tendrils as I scramble to try and download as much information out of my head as possible, uh, but I'm trying to use my memory as opposed to just the book because I want to encourage you all to go read Tom O'Neill's book. It, he does a much better job of this than I could ever do justice, but I try. That said, uh, as the book will fill you in properly, I'm going to just go ahead and hopefully encourage you to do some of your own research and provide some information to pique the interest of all of you out there and get you to do some of that research yourself. So let's get into it. The Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic was founded by Dr. David Smith, and they provided free medical services for the Haight-Ashbury crowd starting in the Summer of Love in 1967. The catch? You had to answer extensive research questions for their files. Who was funding that research? Oh yeah, that fund we talked about last week? The one fronted by the CIA? Yeah, they were the ones who wanted all that information from you. Nothing suspicious at all. What had they been doing for more than that decade at this point? Experimenting on people without their knowledge and then opening this up? What was their objective? Would you have any idea? I have no idea. Well, let's uh, just knock it down as another coincidence if you're still counting from last <laughs> week's episode. And it's not like they were publishing a research journal on drugs and psychedelics right out of that clinic. Uh, oh, wait. Yeah, they were. <laughs> oh, and they continued to do so until I think it was three weeks after Tom O'Neill's book came out. Wow. <laughs> no, nothing suspicious there at all. Let's just wrap up. No, we're all good. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit more about Dr. David. Um, I'm not going to do this justice, like I said, but I'm going to try and remember how a bunch of his research went. The rough idea was that uh, David Smith was proven to be in communication with Sidney Gottlieb. They, uh, we talked about him earlier as being the head of the entire Operation Chaos program, and it appears that he had been researching LSD for that project for some time, publishing research on rats, even in the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic's own Journal of Psychoactive Drugs, no less. His experiments may describe behavior modifications in rats that you can make on them using certain drugs, but the experiments are ones that we know they did on human subjects as well. They seemed pretty sure that they were going to be able to have the same results in those human subjects. Or they were spending a whole lot of time and money if they thought they were not going to get those results. Um, and didn't good old Dr. Jolly say he'd been successful in something very, very similar? Right. So what were those initial experiments describing? These were the rat experiments that were published in their own journal, so they're out there. You can go read them if you want to. Uh, the right dosages and strategies to break down the will of the subjects and make them pliable. You know, brainwashing. And I wish I had more to reference here to give specifics, but I'll once again say, read Tom's book. Uh, but the rats, the drugs they used on the rats most often was LSD. And while they, the rats remained on LSD, they remained susceptible to this brainwashing technique. Now, if I remember right, they formed a fairly cooperative society at this point. 
It was actually when the researchers switched the drugs to amphetamines, then known as speed, but basically another name for methamphetamine. Uh, it was once that switch was made that the group organized under one lead rat who would fuck both the males and females of the group, making them all subservient to him, while the other males would be allowed to freely fuck the females as long as they fought and killed those who challenged that lead male rat. I want to state that again. As long as they fought and killed those who challenged the status quo of the lead rat. And uh, that brings to mind, I didn't know quite into that much detail, but when we were just watching the, uh, the Jordan Peterson, yes, uh, the series we're watching, Maps of Meaning, I remember him mentioning too that, that this is something they see over and over and over and over again. They, when they introduced stimulants in particular into rat populations, the same dominant structure emerges without fail. Yep, exactly. Now, <laughs> I, there's a lot more to it, and I hope you keep in mind the hierarchy switch that happens from these hippie ideals to lust and violence. It, it's going to come up. Tom does a much better job at connecting those dots and presenting that research. I'll just uh, hope you're as intrigued as I was when I go ahead and tell you that this is where I need to bring in the other Smith, Roger Smith. Roger Smith was Charles Manson's parole officer. And not only did he vouch for Charlie after he absconded from Los Angeles upon release, uh, instead of revoking his parole because he disappeared said, hey, no, why don't you just go ahead and stay up here, and we're going to go ahead and give you all these drugs. Just report to me. Oh, yeah. Let's go ahead and get to this part. He had the Charlie and his girls report to him weekly at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic for his parole check-ins. How about that? Maybe he was trying to keep a close eye on a dangerous criminal, right? Yeah. If he's trying to keep that close eye on Charlie, then why does he just get out of jail constantly without charges? Why would Roger get the probation of one of Charlie's girls dropped in a completely other county while seemingly having nothing to do with the case and continue to get Charlie out of jams while he was in Los Angeles? All under Roger's parole and supervision, hundreds of miles away, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Charlie had free reign of this system that Nobody else did. There was no other way around it. They just kind of, I don't even know what else to say about this. Gee, it's almost like the uh, justice systems treats its prisoners as resources rather than actual people. <laughs> I, I can tell you, with my experience under supervision, when I was in Washington, if I left the county without written permission from my PO and I would instantaneously get revoked and be sent back to prison for three years. He was arrested multiple times. His parole officer contacted multiple times and every time they were instructed to let him go. And this is, remember a lifetime criminal 16 plus years in the system. But he's fine. We can just let him go. He, he's not going to do anything wrong again. Exactly. So I guess it's time. Let's, let's go ahead and tackle the spook himself, Charles Manson. Uh, let's 
put a pin in the timeline as it stands, June of 1967. We'll get back to June of 67. Uh, that's, you know, the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic has just opened. COINTELPRO and Operation Chaos are both in full swing. The cast of characters we've already talked about are meeting and conducting experiments right in the Haight-Ashbury district. And then right into the HAFMC walks Charlie Manson, skipping his Los Angeles parole with the first of his family members in tow. And that right there should be enough for anybody's head to explode. Mm -hmm. But before we can get to the murders and what happened after it, we have to step back and tell you about how the American justice system took this tiny kid turned small time crook and through this perfect storm of our perfect shit storm of circumstances, transformed him into a full-blown psychopath before giving him everything he needed to fulfill his every twisted drug-fueled desire. Your tax dollars at work. I just cannot believe this. But, all right, here we go. Charles Manson was actually born Charles Millis Maddox to a single mother in November of 1934 after she had been conned into believing that the father was an army colonel. Charlie never knew his father and his relationship to his stepfather, the one where the Manson name actually comes from, was definitely not a great relationship. The fact that his mother was incarcerated multiple times during his early youth probably didn't help the situation either. By the age of 13, he was in schools for delinquents, such as the one in Terre Haute, which is where corporal punishment was first frequently used on him. At the age of 14, he was sent to the Indiana Boys School, where multiple other students allegedly raped him at the encouragement of a staff member. 1948. This is not that long ago, people. And this is... I don't even want to get into the indigenous schools in Canada and all the shit that they're finding up there. But this is that same level of institutional depravity that has just been seeping out of our society for hundreds of years. I, I, I really urge you, I don't want to go on to a whole, again, you know, it's time to rethink how we live, you know, just, yes, the structures are going to change. This does not give Manson an excuse for anything he ever did. You can feel bad for the situation that made him develop, but he still made choices later on in his life as well. Absolutely. I'm just talking about more in the terms of the bigger picture of what this particular event points to is, you know, I think we're going to be finding out a lot more of what our supposed all-caring government has done and things around the world because, you know, we, the the school, the Catholic thing you talked about, that mm -hmm. includes Canada as well. I mean, you know, buckle up people because things are going to change and remember your true community because that is what is important. It's, yeah, we're going to have to start thinking local here pretty soon. I really hope people do. So... He ran away from this Indiana boys' school 18 times while he was here. It was here that he developed his insane game, a defense strategy where he would screech and wave his arms around, acting as if he were an insane person in order to discourage further attacks. 
again, this is all fucked up and things that, you know, should have been significantly different for him, but doesn't excuse any of his actions. Um, up through 1958, he was doing mostly petty things. If by petty, that includes being caught at 17, raping another teen boy at knife point. That's what they considered petty. Don't worry, though. He got released on good behavior two years later. He also got married and divorced from Rosalie, whom he had a son, Charlie Jr. Then he started pimping out a 16-year-old girl and cashing forged checks. At his trial, Leona made a tearful plea, saying that she and Charlie were in love and intended to marry if they were freed. The judge suspended the sentence, and they were eventually married, most likely to stop any testimony in court. They then went to New Mexico, where he pimped her out yet again, and uh, eventually he was arrested in Laredo, Texas, in a 1960 on a parole violation. And that's the last time that you'll ever see a charge stick to him again. Now, I want to uh, make a point here that besides what this is all leading towards, even back then with this one person, there's something about this dude. He had a magnetism. He had a way to influence people. That's just something he apparently inherently knew how to do. And, so, <laughs> and I'm sure that over time this was noticed. It was. In fact, um, what I thought was first looked like a random note was the fact that uh, a very young Danny Trejo was actually one of the people in the county jail in Los Angeles at the time Manson was there. What ended up standing out to me, however, was that Trejo had said uh, Charlie was already a talented hypnotist. This was 1960, pre any of this other stuff. He was in jail, and on top of what was always said as his natural charisma, Charlie had somehow already developed some sort of hypnosis technique that he was showing off in jail to these people. It's like, yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing, Danny. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, with, with some of the other MK Ultra stuff, it sounds like, you know, it was more like just... Like, sure, they had, you know, certain, like, brainwashing things one to accomplish, but it was kind of like just, like guinea pigging you know just dump a bunch of acid on these people and see what happens this sounds more like there maybe was a specific goal in mind i uh, i don't know that i actually talk about it in here um there were some other cases associated with jolly west where he basically talks about you know we've got to stop talking about this hysteria and we've got to have to try it uh, including this case I don't think I talk about, so I'm going to just mention it real quick. Uh, I wish I could remember the guy's name. He was a soldier stationed in, I want to say, El Paso, Texas, where Jolly West was the psychiatrist. And then all of a sudden, this guy who has no previous record, no anything ever, a uh, girl goes missing, and they find him wandering naked, covered in blood. Little girl, insane, bad, horrible things. He doesn't remember anything, period, ever. It maintains that all the way throughout everything. Um, he's killed, sentenced to death, and uh, is electrocuted within a couple of years. Um 
just so happens all these other coincidences line up right around that timing. And it just makes me think that they were trying to prove that you can get people to do things that were against their moral code and make them forget about it. I just don't know what else you can really say. So after uh, uh, his arrest, he was moved to the uh, from the L.A. County Jail to the U.S. Penitentiary at McNeil Island in Washington State. Uh, Leona was granted a divorce in 1963, and it was alleged that, that she and Manson had a son named Charles Luther. In June of 1966, he was sent to Terminal Island in Los Angeles County in preparation for his release. And on the day of his release, March 21st, 1967, he had spent more than half of his 32 years on Earth in institutions. He actually requested permission to stay inside. He said that he felt more comfortable in than out. And what a different world we would live in if that had been the case. Of course, who knows if he could have had access to eventually getting an entire prison organized for something. (laughs) (laughs) I think that, I honestly think that without the LSD and the MKUltra experiments, that there was a chance he mostly just wanted to be left the fuck alone. And in prison, he was, he could, he knew the system well enough that he was, you know, comfortable. He was in his own element at that point. That makes sense. Having known people with the whole institutionalization thing, I, I just, I could see it. Now, I want to stress this next part is considered consensus fact, even as edited by Wikipedia. Okay. This is not something that's like fringe or out there. But less than a month after his release, March 21st, from prison, Manson moved from Berkeley uh, to Berkeley from Los Angeles, which would have been a probation violation. Instead, after calling the San Francisco Probation Office upon its arrival, he was transferred to the supervision of criminology doctoral researcher and federal probation officer Roger Smith. Until the spring of 1968, Smith worked at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which Manson and his family frequented throughout their stay at the Haight. Roger Smith, as well as the HAFMC's founder, Dr. David Smith, no relation, but both equally creepy, each received funding from the National Institutes of Health to study the effects of drugs like LSD and methamphetamines. Both play a big aspect here on the counterculture movement in the Haight-Ashbury. The patients at the clinic became subjects of the research, including Manson and his ever-expanding group of mostly female followers, who came to see Roger Smith regularly. That much is agreed upon. When and how Charlie and Roger first got connected is not. How he got away with blatant parole violations within weeks of release is not. Tom O'Neill also proved that a large chunk of the HAFMC's funding came directly from the CIA. What did that rat research show again? How was that rat society structured when they were trained on LSD and then transitioned to speed? I'll share more details, but if you take a look for yourself, the structure of the Manson family, you decide. Mm -hmm. Still counting those coincidences? So this takes us back where we left off June of 1967. 
the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic has just opened. Charlie walks in with his one of the initial research patients, clients, subjects, whatever you want to call them at this point, already getting to skip out on his parole with a get-out-of-jail-free card with the first of his family members in tow. And I'm not going to go into the much seedier sex side of the Manson family, but it did appear that the Smiths were, hmm, how do I put it, pleased with the amount of young women that would freely come into their offices with Charlie. Yes, double entendre, as you please. Had Roger already met with Charlie before this? Had his association with David led them to the inevitable conclusion highlighted by Dr. Jolly that these would have to actually be tested and put into real-world situations? These are all the thoughts that I was having by this point. It doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility or even plausibility to me. No, like... You know, and I'm trying to really approach this from somebody who may not be a little more of the quote-unquote conspiracy-minded. Yeah. You know, looking at this from, you know, you've pretty much lived your life by what the status quo has told you. You know, even in that point, I think the case is really well laid out. Well, I uh, I am very grateful for that book to help uh, help me along laying this out because... I would have never been able to put these pieces together, but once you actually get the information, you're like, they, it's the pieces missing from the puzzle don't take away anything from the picture to me. Mm-hmm. So Manson received permission from Roger Smith to move to Berkeley, uh, or rather from Berkeley, after he had just absconded to there, to the Haight-Ashbury District in San Francisco, which is where he supposedly took LSD for the first time. Uh, from there, he used it basically nonstop for the next, well, until his incarceration, basically. Um, David Smith, who before founding the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, studied the effects of acid and amphetamines in rodents, wrote that the change in Manson's personality during this time was the most abrupt Roger Smith had observed in his entire professional career. So I want to make a little note here. That is completely contrary to everything that was said before the trial. Everything that was in the court records, everything that they did to get him out said, oh, he's a model probationee. Uh, it was only after he and his followers were charged with the murders that this was, you know, this information decided to come out. It was also at the same time that Manson decided to read the book Stranger in a Strange Land, a science fiction novel by Robert Heinlein, inspired by the burgeoning free love philosophy in the Haight-Ashbury during the Summer of Love. And that book, Manson decided to begin preaching his own philosophy. Mixed on that, the Bible, Scientology, Dale Carnegie, and the Beatles, which quickly earned him a following in the hate. David Smith is quoted as claiming that Manson attempted to reprogram his followers' minds to submit totally to his will through the use of LSD and unconventional sexual practices. 
that would turn his followers into empty vessels that would accept anything he poured. Now, is it just me, or doesn't this sound suspiciously like David's own published research on rats? I was just going to say, I wonder where he learned that. Manson family. I, somehow, I don't think that was the uh, hypnosis technique Danny Trejo was talking about. It may have played into the reason why they decided to pick Charlie because he was already charismatic and, you know, could get a following. Mm -hmm. But I think it was that perfect storm of, hey, look what we found. Yep. So Manson family member Paul Watkins testified that Manson would encourage group LSD trips and take lower doses himself to keep his wits about him. Watkins said that Charlie's trip was to program us all to submit. By the end of his stay in the hate in April of 1968, Manson had attracted 20 or so followers, all while under the supervision of his parole officer, Roger Smith. I just don't get how you can let a cult start by your parolee. <laughs> uh, also while under the supervision of Roger Smith, uh, and as consensus fact published even on Wikipedia, Manson grew his family through drug use and prostitution without reproach from authorities. Manson was arrested on July 31st, 1967 for interfering with a police officer in the line of duty in an attempt to prevent the arrest of one of his followers, Ruth Ann Morehouse. Instead of him being sent back to prison or Ruth being sent back to prison, the charge was reduced to a misdemeanor. Manson was given three additional years of probation he avoided prosecution again, and her probation was ended early. <sighs> again in July of 68, when he and the family were moving from San Francisco to Los Angeles, with the permission of Roger Smith, somehow, yet again, being able to supervise him from hundreds of miles away, obviously, no problems there, right? Uh, Manson and members were... Uh, crashed in a ditch and when the police stopped to see what was going on Manson and his members of his family including Bruner and Manson's newborn baby were found sleeping naked by the police afterwards he was arrested again and released only a few days later this time on a drug charge still no parole or revocation so he goes from being a uh, seven-year sentence almost for uh, basically parole violation to just being let off every single time he gets arrested for something new. You know, the, normally when you hear about somebody that has these kind of get-out-of-jail-free cards, there's somebody very wealthy, very high up, very well-connected, not a lifelong criminal. I mean, you know. Exactly. You know, why, you know, why would they be letting this guy go? Well, the official narrative basically skips from July of 68 to August of 69 and straight to the Tate LaBianca murder cases. It goes something like the Manson family developed a doomsday cult when Charles became fixated on the idea of an imminent apocalyptic race war between America's black population and the larger white population. Uh, a white supremacist, Manson told some of the Manson family that black people in America would rise up and kill white people, except for Manson and his family, but that they were not intelligent enough to survive on their own, so they would need a white man to lead them. And of course, Manson would serve as their master. 
Yeah, I'm sure that would go over really well with those uh, Black Panthers that he was trying to instigate. Which, yeah, you know, who knows if if any of that originally was part of Manson's viewpoint itself. Who knows how much training and conditioning he got. And, you know, that seems like it would just be a very powerful button to push. And I think that's exactly what it was, a button to push. Uh, late in 68, Manson adopted the term Helter Skelter, taken from the song on the Beatles' recently released White Album, to refer to this upcoming race war. From there, it skips to early August 69, when it says some Manson family members committed the murders in Los Angeles. The Manson family gained national notoriety after the murder of actress Sharon Tate and four others in her home on August 8th and 9th in 1969, and then Leno and Rosemary LaBianco the next day. Tex Watson and three other members of the family executed the Tate-LaBianca murders, allegedly acting under Manson's instructions. While it was later accepted at trial that Manson never expressly ordered the murders, his behavior was deemed to warrant a conviction of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Evidence pointed to Manson's obsession with inciting a race war by killing those he thought were pigs and his belief that this would show the Black Panthers how to rise up and do the same. The family members were also responsible for other assaults, thefts, crimes, and even the attempted assassination of President Gerald Ford in Sacramento by Lynette Squeaky Fromm. Many additional murders are now suspected of the family, and this motive just leaves a lot in doubt for me. Um, again, Tom tells it better if you want more, but let's go ahead and deviate from the standard narrative and now go back to the family leaving San Francisco and moving to Los Angeles in 1968. So we know that... He just basically spent a year, the summer of love, in San Francisco and uh, weekly meetings at the free medical clinic, getting acid um, freely from there to dose his subjects with, getting training from these guys most likely. And now he's being allowed to leave, go hundreds of miles away, and this is... Charlie out on his own, supposedly now. He has gotten the information and the knowledge, and now he is out there. What was Operation Chaos and supposed to do again? Oh, yeah, stir up trouble with the Black Panthers. Right. They, you know, think maybe they, you know, pushed that button a number of times while he was up there, making those thoughts stir around crazy in his head. Now, I don't know if I get to it later on, but the Summer of Love went from this acid hippie fest to lots of violence and extreme drug use over the, the change of one summer, which so incredibly mimicked how the rats change in behavior as soon as speed was introduced. The CIA was funding all of this drug research and most likely responsible for all of the acid that was in the area. They were also most likely responsible for all the speed that was in the area. And they were studying drug effects on what again? R rats. Uh, uh, just rats. We promise. I, I just don't, I don't see how you can't link the entire end of the Summer of Love to this 
but I'll come back to it, I'm sure. Um, okay, one of Charlie's only rules for the family in their Haight-Ashbury days was the insistence that the family stick to acid and weed while avoiding any of the methamphetamine scene that had mysteriously started popping up around the hate. A lot of it just centered all around the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, but I'm sure it's just coincidence that, as we said, Dr. David Smith's research went from LSD to amphetamines and particularly mirrored exactly what happened at the end of that. Uh, why did the family embark to Los Angeles? Well, they believed that Charlie was the new Messiah, even calling him Jesus Christ, and that he was destined to become a big star and change the world with his music. It was under these aspirations that we get some of the most controversial connections and where we get less and less that we can prove as actual fact and more that you have to start putting the pieces together yourself. What we do know What's agreed upon, at least, is that the connection to Terry Melcher and Cielo Drive allegedly came about through Dennis Wilson, the drummer for the superstar pop group, the Beach Boys. Yeah, I heard that they had a connection. Now, did you know anything about this connection at all? Or just that Manson seemed to be around somewhere? No, no, I knew that... uh... I didn't realize that that was his first exact vehicle to actually being able to get something recorded. Like mm. I knew that it, recordings of his music existed. So Wilson had uh, once reportedly picked up two of the female acolytes from Manson's family who had been hitchhiking and he allowed them to crash at his beach house. From there, Wilson took to spending time with the mad guru Manson himself. The unofficial version is access to unlimited sex and drugs might have compromised his judgment. Um, and there were more. There's this group of three or four guys that they call the Golden Rod Club or something like that. But basically, it's all about them fucking as many women as they could. And it's this group of musicians, including Dennis Wilson and Terry Melcher, who were out there trying to just have as much sex as they could because it was the fucking 60s. Right, okay. So Dennis Wilson appears to have become enamored with the family. At the time, he was also very tight with Terry Melcher, the son of Hollywood star Doris Day, who had performed backing vocals on the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds album. By 1968, Melcher had become a hot property, producing the first two Birds LPs, co-founding the Monterey Pop Festival, and it was... Soon after this, that Melcher was introduced to Manson. All indications are that Melcher felt the same way Wilson did. Terry Melcher swears that they never recorded Charlie, but there are many, many reports to the contrary. Whether they were placating him for access to all of his young female companions, most of them were underage, mind you, or whether they thought he could actually be a star is up for debate. What isn't up for debate is the fact that the Beach Boys did a cover of one of his songs. His version, Cease to Exist, was recorded by them with modified lyrics and the new title, Never Learn Not to Love. He was furious when he didn't get a songwriting credit for that. Mind you, this was during the time that Terry Melcher was living at the Cielo Drive house that the Manson family would allegedly send Tex Watson and the others to kill the current occupants. That would be the famous Sharon Tate murder scene. 
Now, before we get to the murders, however, there's a marked change in Charlie when he goes from an aspiring star to ever-increasing paranoiac. The change probably coincides with his growing frustration at not instantly becoming a huge star, but it isn't helped by the family's ever-increasing drug habit, which by this point had come to include speed. After more than a year straight of acid brainwashing, Charlie was now becoming that alpha rat controlling his subordinates, just as predicted by Dr. David Smith's research. Come on, people. How many procedural crime shows have you seen? How can you not see like the steps of how this has unfolded? That's just another coincidence, right? Right. <laughs> Wouldn't the CIA want an inside man trying to keep an eye on things if they were trying to stir the pot, though? I mean, you'd think they'd want to look in on Charlie if, you know, Roger was still up in San Francisco. So who would that be? Well, Tom O'Neill presents a really good suspect named Reeve Whitson as that inside man. Now, Reeve Whitson was a man with an eidetic memory and a talent for espionage. All of his friends and family either straight up say that he worked for the CIA or were not surprised at all by the assertion when asked. The Oscar-winning visual effects cinematographer for Star Wars, Richard Edlund, pondered his enigmatic friend Reeve Whitson after it was shown to him that his job was to seemingly infiltrate hippie groups for U.S. intelligence. Now, Reeve Whitson's social circle also included U.S. Air Force General Curtis LeMay, another conspiracy theory favorite, as well as notorious SS officer Otto Scorsese. That's quite an interesting little circle there. From Hollywood stars to generals to SS officers. No, nothing suspicious about this weird random guy who shows up in the middle of all of this with a perfect memory. You know, uh, there's a certain portion in the in the book of uh, What the Bleep Do We Know, mm -hmm. where they talk about, you know, there's a lot of attention and should be given to the military industrial complex, but there's also the entertainment industrial complex there there's a very much interweaving going on there as we just saw oh absolutely so reeve later seemed to lament to friends that he could have prevented the murders but he wasn't allowed to there were also rumors that people were on the scene of the murders before the police had been contacted Reeve Whitson is a good suspect to have gone along with Charles Manson after the fact, and he seems to have actually called the main witness that tied Manson to the Cielo Drive house before the police had even known the bodies were there. Sharon Tate's friend and personal photographer, Sharok Hatami, had testified that he had seen Manson drop off Terry Melcher at Cielo Drive months earlier. Hatami says that the call from Reeve Whitson came to him at 7 a.m., that's a full 90 minutes before the police were even on the scene. <laughs> there were always rumors that somebody else had shown up. Manson at one point said that he had. Manson being tied to Reeve just makes the most sense to me. Mm -hmm. Now, this seems to be the start of the possible panic or cover-up. If the goal of Operation Chaos was to incite violence and lead to distrust of the Black Panthers and other such domestic groups, doesn't that lead nicely into the helter-skelter motive that they decided to run with the trial? Reeve actually appears to 
have steered witnesses to the cops, trying to get them to arrest Charlie and other members of the Manson family. But somehow the cops just kept letting the connections go. Whether those were just, you know, not seen or deliberately ignored, you can make your own guess. The police first denied any connection between the Tate murders and the LaBianca murder scene the next day. Just seven days after the murders, though, on August 16th, 1969, the sheriff's office raided the Spawn Ranch, which Manson and his family members had been staying at for the past year. And Manson and 25 others were arrested that day. Seven days after the murders. I want to emphasize that for a second. They were suspects in a major auto theft ring that had been stealing Volkswagens and Volkswagen Beetles and converting them into dune buggies. Weapons were seized, uh, as well as stolen credit cards that fell out of Manson's pocket as they arrested him. Okay, In possession of himself, not just on the property, Manson had stolen credit cards on him when the largest raid in, in L.A. County history court, and I think I go into about who it was coordinated with, but ever budget wise i still think it's the biggest one and it's gonna get bad uh they say that the warrant had been misdated and that was the reason why they had to release the group a few days later that excuse has been refuted and shown to be completely incorrect by tom o'neill's research when he found the actual warrant and it was shown to have the correct date on it it was the largest and most expensive raid in history at the time. They still didn't revoke Manson's parole, let alone make a connection to the murders around Hollywood. So many people around Hollywood had already known about Terry Melcher and Charles Manson's connection, as well as the Manson family and all of the other stuff that was going on, that they were asking about Charles Manson having been the murderer. And the police had him in custody seven days after the fact, and let all of the family go. It's, it's kind of like when you start to unravel this, you know, it's like with the point we were making about Kennedy. You know, when you just, certain things, or, you know, you look at these official stories and they just don't add up. And keep in mind, people, this is what happens with... Uh, now that information is available. Yeah, people couldn't just hop on the computer and check up facts or call people on their bullshit. They were able to get away with lies fairly easily up until the late 90s. You know, really when, especially back then when things were still done very much by newspaper, then there was live news at the time too. But we had still had a very, very limited access to what information was available. There was no 24 hour news cycle that so was going was on. Very, very easy for things to be done under the radar. What was the CIA's goal at this point? Were they hoping that the boiling point would be reached that Manson's insane helter skelter delusions might actually be pulled off? Do you think they actually wanted a race war to show up from all of this? Were they just, what were they trying to do? Well, so we're obviously talking about, you know, testing the theory of somebody programmable. Mm. So that's probably one aspect of it there. 
But as far as, you know, the racial side, I mean, yeah, that's, that's who they were, one of the groups they were targeting. And also the, uh, you know, a lot of the anti-war and the hippie counterculture. So that's kind of like bringing it all together. Well, personally, I think that there are very few people left alive who have any remaining details on the case, but they still do exist right now. They're, the main person that I'm thinking about is actually one that may have already provided absolute proof that contradicts the official narrative, and that's the murderer Tex Watson himself. So... Those familiar with the Manson family will definitely know his name as the leader of those murders. Supposedly, the family members only carried out those murders right after having taken speed. Now, that was later recanted by the people who were um, talking about it. And I don't know why they would have recanted that, as it would have given them some sort of an excuse. But I, I don't think that it fit with the official narrative. It's also why they tried Tex Watson separately from the rest of the family members, because they didn't have to bring in certain bits of evidence that they think would have contradicted itself. Okay. That said, it's actually another confession that would likely break the case wide open, and that confession was of Tex himself. But this confession was made to his own personal attorney in Texas, while he was awaiting extradition to Los Angeles and before the prosecution had made their official story. On October 2nd, 1969, after having been released with the rest of the family members just over a month earlier, uh, Watson had fled the Spawn Ranch and headed back to his native state of Texas. On November 30th, 1969, Watson was arrested in Texas for the Tate-LaBianca murders. He he and his lawyers fought extradition to California for nine months. Upon arriving in California, Watson stopped talking and eating, losing 55 pounds, and began regressing to a catatonic state. He was admitted to a Tuscadero State Hospital for a 90-day evaluation period to determine if he was fit to stand trial. Watson stayed there until February of 1971 when he was deemed able to stand trial. Here's the thing. Tom O'Neill uncovered those confession tapes made to the lawyer and located where they had actually ended up after the law firm's property was all sold. The tapes were supposed to be released to him, but he actually agreed to let them be released to the new district attorney for San Francisco as they had developed a good relationship, and that DA agreed to let him, Tom, see the fruits of that labor after they were in possession. Wow. Guess what happened? The DA decided that there was nothing of substance on those tapes and has now sealed them. Tom was not allowed to see them. And it was just like they never existed again. Don't bother. It's not worth your time. You don't need to see these. Don't I'm, pay I'm just, just going to seal them up just in case. Yeah, don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah. There's nothing of interest, nothing of substance, but I'm going to seal them. Exactly. Nothing of substance here might as well not dispel any rumors and rather let it just sit there and fester for another 50 years. Mm -hmm. No reason we'd want to release those tapes, right? Nothing to see here. I suppose that really brings us to as much of a conclusion as I can give you. I hope that you've drawn your own conclusions and really spark some curiosity to go out and do some of this research and realize that what we're being told 
is not an absolute fact. And most of the time, if it's an official narrative, you can be very sure more is going on behind the surface. Yes, I think that is, you know, probably the thing to take away the most from this is you hear about this, something this horrific, you process what do you even do about it. And that's the start. It's, it's take it to understand that, again, this. I remember when we did our 420 special talking about, you know, the whole horrific process of, of the smear campaign against cannabis and mm-hmm. hemp. Like, why are we not using hemp right now? But anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's pretty much obvious, you know, our government manipulates information, does underhanded stuff. I really do think this is just a taste of business as usual for our government. So going forward, you know, I'm not saying don't automatically disbelieve everything you're saying, but just think critically about it. Don't be openly accept what's being spoon fed. Just think about it. Consider it, you know, look deeper. Ask some questions because what makes any of us really think that things have gotten better in the last 52 years? The technology against us has grown exponentially. Their ability to collect information has grown in ways we can't even really fathom. And when we find out about it from like the Snowden leaks and all the other stuff, what do we do? A collective shrug and business as usual. Let them keep going. Personally, I think like everything has just gotten sneakier. Big Brother can have all of our data as long as we have our free apps and regurgitated entertainment. So I just hope that all of you stay aware and stay awake and keep asking questions. Oh, there's there's so many directions I want to go with this because, you know, Yeah, it's time to really rethink our lives here, people. You know, not to sound a little doomsday here, but our the way we live our lives is is not going to fit anymore. People are changing for the better, but there's going to be a lot of, let's say, growing pains in between. The only thing that any of us can do is live our own life in the best way that we can and live by example that we would want others to see and do. Exactly. Be the change. Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us, Sean. And thank all of you listeners again for joining us. I hope to see you again here soon. Yes. Thank you everybody. And it's as always, it's been a pleasure. Thank you again for joining us here today. I hope you enjoyed this short series on The Exchange. I want to thank Tom O'Neill and all of his hard work on his book, Chaos. Without his diligence, we would know so much less than we do about this pivotal part of American history. I also want to give a special thanks to Sean Shumway for joining us again today. 
and finishing out this series with me, as well as an even more special thanks to all of our listeners, because you are the reason I make these podcasts. I hope you continue to enjoy them and that you keep spreading the word about the exchange and these amazing Awakened Vapes. Please tell your friends about us, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, or wherever else you're listening, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every podcast says that because it really does help with visibility. You can also support us on Patreon or connect with us on the social media of your choice. We are at Awakened Exchanges on Facebook and Instagram and at Awaken Exchanges on Twitter. Thanks again for listening to Awakened Exchanges. Have a blessed day.